Tonight, I want to give you a little heads up. You know, every once in a while, uh, there's a passage of Scripture that, that is kind of like the 48-ounce tomahawk porterhouse steak. And, and it is such a hunk of meat uh, that you may not be able to finish it all. And, and such is the passage before us tonight. Though it's only two verses, uh, it comprises five of the essential doctrines of salvation that we as Christians believe to be true uh, in those two verses. And so tonight, how God does it. God, by his own will, foreordained before the beginning of time, has put forth a plan of salvation that includes all that should call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. To as many as believe that he would receive them. There are all these incredible promises in Scripture of what happens when God is at work in our lives and we respond to the grace of God through the faith that God gives us as a gift, to what we would call his plan of salvation, or we have before us tonight, in a theologic term, the doctrine of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. And so this is a meaty passage, and I'm going to try not to bore you with theological speech, but I think it's essential that the body of Christ be armed with the truth of the Word of God. And so Tonight, uh, you're going to have to kind of keep your thinking hats on. Now, before we dig into this 48-ounce porterhouse piece of meat that is Scripture, I also want to let you know that you're not saved because you understand the doctrines of of salvation. You're saved by faith. And that faith allows you to believe. So this is really the background of what it is that you do believe as someone who believes by faith. So please don't misunderstand my intent here in sharing with you, as I will tonight. I also find it necessary, and we will look in a moment, uh, at what is perhaps the bitterest uh, of all of the divisions that exist to this day within the body of Christ into two camps, Uh, One, the doctrine of John Calvin, and on the other side, the doctrine of Jacob Arminius. So we have these two uh, opposing theologic views that all have to deal with this passage of Scripture at some point in time. And their conclusions uh, about what God does when he saves someone and what is your responsibility by your choices through that faith and what God has done to make it possible for you to be saved. And so we are going to look at something that is inexplicable in human terms, but we're going to try and give it some explanation. And that is, here's God's sovereign plan on one side and man's free will choice on the other. And so stay with me. I'll try and make it interesting. I I will attempt not to mess it up. And I will tell you at the same time, At the end of tonight, none of us are going to be able to say we know categorically all of these things without any shadow of doubt. Uh, We will all probably walk away with a handful of questions because God's ways are above our ways. 
And ultimately, we can't know exactly how God does everything, and that's actually the root of the problem between these two great doctrinal stances of both Calvinism and Arminianism. There is only one other real viable option, and that is the doctrine of universalism. And so as I'm using these terms, I want to help you understand them. So on one side, you have the emphasis of God's sovereignty. On the other side, you have the emphasis of man's free will. So over here with a Calvinist view, you would say God is so sovereign that he even goes so far as to overrule the choices of man at times. And on the other side, you have man's free will so powerful that it overrules the sovereignty of God. And that's really the divisive point central to the the argument that we'll need to look at to get through this tonight. But in the middle of that is a doctrine that finds no basis in Scripture, from my humble opinion, and that's the doctrine of universalism. And what that doctrine is, is this is so difficult to understand that God must simply, in the end, save everybody. And let me just put that one to rest before we get started tonight, because if that's true, then Jesus is a liar. Because he spoke about hell, the reality of it, and not wanting anyone to go there. So why would he mention those things, and why would Scripture be so filled with the warnings to walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of the flesh? There is no place in your Bible that you could ever point to biblically and say there's any support that in the end God is just good he's nothing but love so he just simply saves everybody we're going to throw that one out and not give it any time tonight okay so now having said that would you join me and let's pray as we dig in to this very needy two verses father we thank you and we praise you that even in difficult passages of scripture You can enlighten our minds to know by the Spirit the truth of your word. And so, God, I pray that you would set me aside, uh, my intellect, Lord, the things that you have given me that might get in the way, uh, even my understanding, Lord, and would you, by the Spirit, through your word, speak to your church tonight. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 29, Romans chapter 8. Now notice the attention to detail here. Because it begins with something that makes no sense unless you will look back. For whom? That's referring to someone that's already been mentioned. Who is that? That is the ones to whom all things work together for the good, who love God and are the called according to his purpose, which we saw last week is only those who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? So it begins to whom? He, and please circle all of the he's and all of the hymns, uh, if they happen to be in your rendition of the Bible. If you're reading from one of the more modern translations, you may have a his in there. Uh, and, and so if it's he or his, please circle it. And also at the same time, maybe underline the whom's or the these, because it is very specific that we're going back and forth to a, from a group of people to the person who accomplishes what is being done or what is known. Very important for the context of what's being said here. And I realize this is overtly theologic, so please try and stay with me. It's important to the context for us moving forward to get this from the get-go. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. 
to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Do you see why it helps to read it that way? And here's why. These are five things that can't be separated. You cannot pull the foreordination of God's sovereign plans from his predestination to what is done with them. You can't take his glorification away from either of those two things. You cannot remove his calling. You must leave them all intact because Scripture has linked them together inexorably. You can't pull them apart. So there's no such thing as the doctrine of justification apart from the doctrine of glorification. There is no such thing as apart, uh, the, the doctrine of predestination apart from the calling of God. And so as we begin this, please look at it as a unified whole. God didn't just tell you, well, I foreordained everything. God has not told you, I simply predestined everything. God has not told you that he simply is going to justify everyone. And he has not told you that he is also just simply going to glorify everyone apart from them being called, justified, foreordained, and predestined. Everybody confused? Good. Because that's exactly how this incredible argument has gone on for 500 years. People pull these things apart, they pull their proof texts out, and they say, well, if God foreordains, he must foreordain this way. And if God predestines, he must predestine this way. And if God calls, he must call this way. And if God justifies, he must justify this way. And if God glorifies, he must glorify this way. And before you know it, you back yourself into a theologic corner. Have any of you ever held a, a strongly held belief and thought you had it pretty well put into your head and then you started talking with someone about said belief only to back yourself into a corner to where you could no longer defend your position? That is what's happened with both the Calvinist argument and the Arminian argument. At some point in time, it falls apart on both sides. And so while we look at these verses tonight, hang with me. So to make this very simple, I put up the five points. Remember, you can get these from the internet. You do not need to take a photo of them, though you can, nor do you need to copy them down, though you can. You can just download them from the internet. Very easy. I put them up there for you. And, and so there are five main points. They all attach to these two verses. And those, those five points are this, that within a theologic bent that we call Arminianism, and it, and it really is that of John and Charles Wesley, it's held on largely the Pentecostal side of evangelical Christendom, and on the other side, you have the Calvinists that are more leaning towards the conservative Baptist churches and the like there. And so you have these two sides. On the Arminian side, you have the overriding concept of man's free will. In other words, man actually is kind of the center of his own salvation. And because my free will supersedes, in essence, God's calling and his justification and his election, I have to actually tell God what to do with my life. 
And that's the easiest way for you to understand it. So then, your election by God, your justification by God, your sanctification by God, your glorification by God becomes conditioned on you doing something to receive it. Which, as you can see, we might have a problem with that if you are saved by grace and through faith and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Amen? So you can kind of see how the argument begins to kind of fall apart, though in some ways you can say, yeah, I can see that because I have to believe. I can see that. I'm supposed to walk in the Spirit. Christ was sacrificed for absolutely everyone is the belief on that side. In other words, not only did Christ die for the godly, but he also died for the ungodly. And so you can see where we might get some agreement Kind of, and you're going to see this, with both sides. That God's grace, though very powerful, is actually obstructible. In other words, you can be such a fiercely rabid sinner that God's grace actually cannot get to you. And then finally, and again I'm simplifying this so that you can understand it. People can fall from the grace of God. They take those passages in Hebrews and they apply them nearly universally to everyone all day, every day. So you can fall from the grace of God simply by sinning yourself out of the grace of God. So every time you sin, you need to get saved again. Otherwise, you just lost your salvation because you said a naughty word. So you can see on that side of the equation... You are in big trouble because every last bit of it lies on Y-O-U-U. Now for the other side, the Calvinist argument. And these are the five points. And they were developed in essence. Jacob Arminius comes up with his five, and here's how this works. It's all on man. John Calvin responds and says, no, no. Actually, God kind of does everything in advance, and you're just in one camp or the other camp. And so his five points, we would say, is man's total depravity. And and there's an acronym here. It's actually TULIP, and if you hear that, that's what it means. It means these four things. Man's total depravity. In other words, man is totally depraved, 100%, cannot do anything for himself. I would say to that, yes and amen. So now I've already agreed with part of Jacob Arminius' side of this, and now I'm starting to begin, I'm agreeing with John Calvin too. You know what? Can I tell you something? According to the two camps, you can't do that. You have to believe all of one or all of the other, or you're not in their camp, and ultimately they actually judge whether you're in the kingdom or not by understanding each of the five points, putting them together and saying yes and amen to all five. So I'm in deep trouble because I'm a Calvinist. I, I look at both sides and I go, you know what? I believe that man is absolutely, totally depraved. You know why? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you can see how when you start to pull these things apart, and that's why I shared with you what I shared with you. When you take predestination and you remove it from calling... Or you take foreknowledge and you pull it away from glorification. Or you take any of the great Bible doctrines and you yank them out and you start trying to define how it works. Sands the rest of Scripture, you run into a corner. And if that room happens to be round and you paint yourself into the corner, you're really in trouble. Amen? 
that there is unconditional election. You see how these things are beginning to be pulled out. In other words, God, when he elects someone unto salvation, he does so without any of your doing involved. And you would say, ah, you know what? Grace is a gift. I agree with that. But then he goes to limited atonement. Now, this is the opposite of what a, a, a person who's an Arminian would believe because it really says that God only sent Jesus to die for the elect and those whom he called. Now I got a problem, don't I? Because Christ came for the whole world. Amen? So now you, have to, you, gotta, you scratch your head and you go, wow, did Christ actually die for everyone or did he just die for those who would believe in him? So was his sacrifice actually limited to just Christians? That's kind of a conundrum, isn't it? The fourth point, God's grace is irresistible. In other words, God's grace actually isn't strong enough to save anyone uh, on one side. And on this side, it's so irresistible that if God's grace comes to you, you don't actually need to make a choice because it's going to draw you irresistibly to Christ. You're all looking like, oh, quit, please. And the last one is the perseverance of the saints. In other words, if you are actually a child of God, then you will always continue to walk in the Spirit so that you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, this side emphasizes God's sovereign plan. And so as I've shared these things with you, you can kind of see how people might divide into camps because after a while, you can't really link them together. You do have to land on one side or the other. It's either all on you or it's all on God. Now here's why we in Calvary Chapel are always in trouble with both these camps. Because we go, well, I'm a three-point Arminianist and I am a four-point Calvinist. So that means I have seven points that's two more than you're allowed by either side. <laughs> so I'm telling you that I think Scripture fairly clearly supports parts of both sides and not so clearly supports parts of both sides. And so for my Calvinist brothers, in Jesus' name, by his grace, I believe in a sovereign God whose actions are immutable from time immortal from the very beginning. And to my Arminian brothers and sisters, I believe that man does have to make a choice and that man is called by God to walk in the Spirit and that you do not own your own life. In fact, Christ paid for it. He owns it. And if you're always in sin, you've got a problem with God. So as Calvary Chapel, we're kind of someplace in the middle. I want you to understand that because it is a distinctive. And furthermore, when it comes to end times things, both of these camps are really off on the deep end very often. Because very often what has to happen now is because God's plan on one side is just his sovereignty pretty much in action. On the other side is just man's plan. You, you end up having a real problem with why in the world would you have any such thing as the rapture of the church, the tribulation, or really even the second coming, and especially why would you have 
the, the millennial reign of Christ. And so very often they also end up in the amillennial camp. In other words, there won't be a millennium. The next thing on the church's uh, line of things that's going to happen is we're all probably going to die. We're going to come back with the Lord at the second coming of Christ. So he skips the tribulation, skips the rapture of the church, and goes directly to the second coming of Christ, and it ends with the new heaven and new earth. So it messes up everything. Having said that, let's dig into this passage now. The first thing we see is the underlying purpose for salvation itself to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, he's saying, look, God's gripping you, you're not gripping him. God's got you by the hand. You want to notice, and that's why I had you underline, circle the, both the he's signifying God and the whom signifying you all, is that who's doing the gripping? Who's doing the, the work? God has brought these things forth to us, and he says, look, I've got you, and I have called you, and I have predestined you, and I have foreordained you, and I will glorify you, and I will call you. But it's all to the use. So the same person that needs to make the choice to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ has been called, ultimately, to glorify God. So when I tell you that the reason the church is still here is to glorify God, I actually got it from the book of Romans. That's what we're here for. To tell people about the firstborn, the only begotten Son of God, who's the only way of salvation, the one who's the way and the truth and the life. You see, the purpose is to conform us into his image. To make sure that people see him. This is the clearest presentation, in essence, of all that is our salvation, in a nutshell, that's found anywhere in God's Word. There are two parts to that. One is, we are to be conformed into the image of Christ bodily. You realize that Scripture teaches that. Philippians chapter 3, one day the Lord will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity of His body, there in Philippians 3, verse 21 by the exertion of power that he's been subject to all things by himself. In other words, from a modern translation, he's saying, look, one day I'm going to transform you, Jeff Gill, into a glorified body that's just like mine. So we have been called ultimately to be actually just like Jesus. Right now we're trying to get there as best we possibly can. That's why it's so essential that we walk in the Spirit. That's why it's so essential that we follow what God's Word says. That's why we're supposed to be exactly like the Word says we're supposed to be. Because ultimately, we are going to be exactly like the Word says, because that is God's Word. And in fact, Jesus, when He came, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So one day, we're going to be just like Jesus, bodily and also spiritually. Not only are we going to have a spiritual body that's like Christ, we are going to have the mind and everything else. Now, having said that, people will accuse instantaneously. You mean we're going to be gods? No, we are not. Scripture's very clear on that as well. But we are going to be like in nature, and we are going to be like in physical ability. We're going to be living in a world that is not like this one. That's why Jesus told the disciples that in my Father's house are many mansions, and I go to prepare a place for you. God doesn't live in Lomita. He lives in heaven. 
So wherever Jesus and God are, we're one day going to live there, and that is not of this world. In other words, it's not like, I think I can see it from here. It's heaven. So we're going to need to be suited for heaven in order to live where the Lord lives right now. And he's going to make that happen. Furthermore, guess what? When you get there, you can't sin. For in him, sin can't, you cannot dwell in the presence of the Lord in sin. So you're going to have to have a fully transformed nature. Right now you have one that's capable, but one that is not perfected yet, but on the road to perfection. That's that sanctification that happens your entire life. So in all of these things, though not becoming deity, we will be like the Lord in, in as much as we as human beings can be like him. The second thing that we see is, is that we've been put on this earth to make Christ known, to make him preeminent, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. In other words, when Jesus rose from the dead, he became the preeminent one of the book of Colossians, the firstborn from the dead, one of one. He is the only one that was raised not to die again. Amen? So when he was raised, he was taken to heaven. When Lazarus was raised, Lazarus died again and then went. But Jesus was the firstborn of the dead. And so we have been called to tell other people about him and to be like him in that sense. In other words, our mission is to make Christ number one, period. That's why when people haggle over things that are not essential to salvation, it bums God out. Because ultimately, people don't want anything to do with the message of the cross because they don't like the way the message is delivered. In other words, we become the problem instead of the ones that are supposed to be the example. We're supposed to make Christ preeminent. What that simply means is everything we do and everything we say, all that we are, every resource we have is supposed to be made useful to making people know Jesus. Your whole life is to be governed by that principle. And so he tells us this. God's original purpose, remember, was we were made in his image. Amen? That was the original purpose for mankind, completely in the image of God. And Adam messed that up for all of us. You can slug him later. But he's family, so don't hit him too hard. So we were made in the image of God. That image got messed up. So now God's going to redeem us. And as he redeems us through salvation, through faith in Christ, we actually get to return to the ultimate and original purpose, and that's to glorify God fully. So he's going to do those things with us, and so that plan is still his plan. Sometimes people kind of give up on the plan of God. When Adam and Eve rebelled, they alienated themselves from God. It brought damnation. It brought death into the world. Through one man's sin, death reigned. And so people now, because they're sinners, also die. But one day, you're not going to taste death again. You're, you're going to die that first. You're not going to die the second time. For those who don't know the Lord, that second death that's spoken of there in Revelation is, is what is ahead for those who don't know Jesus. So Jesus conquered death. 
We're supposed to make him known. And that's why we thank God for the salvation that we have in Christ, because that's the only way that all these problems can be fixed. Because you leave it up to man, and I can show you what this looks like, look at the world's religions. If you want to see how badly we can mess up the God's plan of salvation, look at the Christian religions in the world. You have people of every flavor saying, unless you believe like this, you can't be saved. Unless you believe like this, you can't be saved. I want you to be very clear with me tonight. I did not say that. But that is what some of those groups believe. In other words, you don't understand election this way. You're not one of the elect, and thereby you're not saved. If you ever sin after becoming a Christian, you need to get saved again before you die because you just sinned your way out of God's grace. And if you don't believe that, then you have not the work of the Holy Spirit in you and you are not saved. Do you see how painfully awful that is? It can't possibly be that that's true. Because as much as I've studied it, I don't fully understand all of the components of both sides And I have written on both sides of the subject. So it is important for us to remember that God must have had a much simpler plan than that. Praise God we have that plan before us tonight. The progression of salvation is the easiest way to look at it. These five things, and we'll see them in a moment, we'll link them together, are essential for us to to realize that they're unbreakable. This is the way God works out salvation in us. He's given us, how many of you have taken college courses in here? Okay, I'm not trying to disrespect anybody, but normally if you've taken a college course, you normally get what's called a syllabus at the beginning of the college course. You can get that in high school sometimes, a course syllabus, that's course course. That course syllabus typically has, as part of it, an outline of the course. Amen? Okay? Probably most of you know what an outline is. Even from maybe junior high, you might have had to write your first outline. So here's your main point, here's your sub-points, and here are the, here's the body of that outline. Here you have a five-point outline of how God works out his plan of salvation to believers. And it's a very simple thing. It's designed to be so that you can see the work of God in a very simple way. And so he gives us the progression of our salvation. Paul's going to accentuate this, the unity that's here by linking each one with the previous one. And, and we already discussed that as we read these verses. To whom? To the ones to whom all things work together for the good. That's established. That's only God's people. Everything doesn't work out for the good. Matter of fact, it works out for the very bad if you perish and and go to hell, doesn't it? You could have everything work out good, but if you perish when you take your last breath eternally, that would be the worst kind of things, not working out for the good. So the only people to whom that promise exists is those who are the ones whom God has called according to his purpose. So he repeats that part of it within these five things. Let's work through them, and I think we can do this fairly quickly. So whom God foreknows, that person's not going to fail to be predestined. You're going you're to look back on your life and go, man, God had me in his sights the whole time. And I'm going to simplify these things because I think sometimes in trying to explain them too deeply, we actually go over the top and now we just confuse people. 
So I'm going to keep it simple. These five points meant to be taken together are are God's plan for you. These are the five unbreakable links that are in this passage. The first one is God's foreknowledge. Verse 29, the, the first part of it, the A part of it, if you will. There's an A and a B here, and there will be an A, B, and C in verse 30. Those whom he foreknew. When you think about God looking at your life, Let me ask you a simple question. If God is God and he is completely sovereign, he's omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent, he knows all things, is everywhere at once, he can't be taught anything, and he can do anything is another way to look at it. If he is completely sovereign and those things are true, because that would actually make him God, amen? Can God be taught anything? Of course not. Otherwise, he does not know everything. Can God be kept from doing anything? No. Otherwise, he's not all-powerful. Can God be someplace to where he's not everywhere at once? The answer is no. Do you see how these things become easy to discern when you take them and you say, okay, if he's any less than that, he's no longer sovereignly God. And so if you leave God God... His foreknowledge must extend all the way to the beginning in Genesis 1.1. And actually passed it. So when Scripture says Christ was seen as the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, what do you think that means? That God had a plan before he ever created the universe and everything in it that he was going to send Jesus Christ into this world that the world through him could be saved. So in that sense, of course God foreknows absolutely everything. Doesn't matter what it is, all foreknowledge is is an attribute that only God can have. You, You see, if you take it and you mess with it, then it becomes unbiblical. It actually becomes illogical. If you just boil it down to what God can see, then God has to see something to do something. It can't be that that's foreknowledge. It has to be much deeper than that. It's not, as as wonderful as analogies are, it's not like God is just hovering above the parade and he can see one into the other. That's one way to explain a very small portion of his foreknowledge. And it helps us get the picture because he can see the end on both sides and he knows what's in the middle. That part is true, but here's the problem. If he must see it to know it, then he's not God. So foreknowledge goes way deeper. It goes to the fact that he has foreknown everything. In other words, in the mind of God, absolutely everything and everyone and all that we can possibly ever know and ever see to the mind of God was in his mind before it ever became a thought. That's kind of hard for us to grasp, isn't it? Because I don't know what I had for lunch. You understand what I'm saying? See, we look at God, we anthropomorphize God, we say, this is a human characteristic, I'm going to give it to God, and it fails. Because God isn't like us. God is spirit, and they that worship God worship him in spirit and in truth. So God's foreknowledge is the first piece of this puzzle. You you see, if you start working with that, you say, okay, well, if God saw it, then he's obligated to do it. Now, guess what? You've made God a tyrant. So if he sees something, he's got to do it. That can't be God. So there's more to it than that. 
You could also come to the place, well, why did God even create unbelievers in the first place? If he simply knows that unbelievers won't be saved, why did he ever create them? Wouldn't you think God would just simply not create anyone that would ever perish? So his foreknowledge is a whole bunch deeper than the way we think about it. Amen? God does know in advance, but he does not pre-cause everything to be viewed, seen, or he does not pre-cause you to respond to it the way you think that you ought to. He gives you the opportunity to make that decision even though he does know which decision you're going to make. Very difficult to wrap your head around God's foreknowledge. There's absolutely nothing in, in our carnal minds. That's why Scripture says, look, the minds of the unbelievers... They're carnal and they can't know God. That's why Paul could write those words there in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, look, the, the carnal mind doesn't know God. But that doesn't mean the carnal mind can't know God. It just means that the carnal mind doesn't know God. And as the light goes on, as the Spirit comes to us, God's foreknowledge understands all things. And when they will, he knows that point in time when that foreknowledge and the predetermined plans of God are going to cross paths. And so he takes that plan, the decision-making counsel between God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit, all of those things that happen in heaven that we cannot know how they do it. He takes that idea of willful intention, and he says, because of that, I know. And I've always known it. And I could never not know it. But at the same time, he leaves you with the choice to act upon what he already knows. So the first is foreknowledge. The second is predestination. And again, we misunderstand this word because the, the original, the Greek word here means to mark out, to appoint, or to determine ahead of its schedule. In other words, if God does foreknow everything, don't you think that he could take a circle and put it around your life and say, on April 14th of 1968, Jeff Gill is going to go forward at a crusade with an evangelist by the name of Mel Dibble. I know it's a weird name, but he preached the gospel and I got saved. Don't you think God could put a circle around that date on the calendar? Don't you guys do that? You, have a, you know, you got something important and you circle the date? You see, in a similar way, but eternal, God's predestination is much like his foreordination. Foreordinate means to prognosco. In other words, he knows ahead of times all things. And here, it means that because he knows the destiny of everyone, he acts on things as if they have already happened. In other words, God doesn't make mistakes. So how do you think he can work together for the good, everything in everyone's life who loves him, unless he knows everything and could put a mark on the calendar where those things are going to happen? He couldn't. They're all tied together. And so these things are assembled, not so we'd pull them apart, but so we'd see them as a unified whole. He has predestined according to his will. But notice what he has predestined us to. And this is the part that always gets people. He has predestined us to salvation. 
In other words, there's a point to taking that knowledge and circling the calendar. He knew exactly when I would receive Jesus. And so his, predest- his predestination in my life is to something. It's not about everything. It's not even my choices. It's he has said, I have created you so that you would be saved. And I can tell you exactly when that's going to happen. Because I'm God. We are Christians first and foremost because in the mind of God, the plans of God, God put forth a plan so that we could be saved. Amen? Can you imagine? Let me help you. Take the plan of God out of all of this. Take the he's out. How many people do you think are actually going to get saved if Jesus doesn't come into the world? How many people do you think are actually going to search out God and make their own way to get to him? The answer is zero. I can prove that to you. Their names are Adam and Eve. Right? They had a perfect environment. There was no sin in the world. They were given absolutely everything. They were made in the image of God. They even walked with God in the cool of the day. And what did they do? Baloo it. Amen? So it's a picture of why God had to send Jesus in the first place. Because he gave us an opportunity just like he gave Adam and Eve to come clean. You see, to him who confesses this sin, God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness. In other words, you have to repent to be saved. But you don't simply get saved because you know about salvation. You actually have to do what God tells you to do. Adam and Eve did that. And so has everyone that has believed on the name of the Lord. And so in that light, God, of course, calls us. And to whom he predestined, he also called. In other words, he says, right here. And that's two types of call. One is inward. Most of you probably remember your salvation experience. Do you remember the tug on your heart? I do. I remember sitting in the pews El Cajon First Baptist Church, I was about six or seven rows from the front, and it was like, I couldn't get out of that pew fast enough to go receive Jesus. God was calling me to salvation. His Holy Spirit was at work in my life, and boom, I knew I needed a Savior. And I needed him right then, right there. So if God has foreordained us, if God has predestined us to believe, God will absolutely call you into salvation. He's going to give you an opportunity. He's going to send someone along like he sent to me. Just as I am as playing, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That's me. I'm going. I got the call. Holy Spirit called. Holy Spirit's on the line. You need to get saved. Amen. God called. You see, it isn't that God doesn't call everyone, but he specifically calls people into salvation to those who believe. Those receive. So God makes the call. You got to pick up the phone. You got to answer the call. That's where your choices come in. You see how the Calvinist side and the Arminian side kind of fight each other. It's like, no, God just put me in one camp or the other. Because he foreordained everything. He predestined everything. And I'm just over there. 
They're not, you see, you can take it too far both directions. If a person ever perishes, it's because he has rejected the only way of salvation. It's not because God didn't call. He who believes on him shall not judge, but he who does not believe has been judged already, John 3 says. John 1 goes on to give us even further clarification. Believers, not by blood, not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but by God. God's calling. He's saying, look, come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And furthermore, his calling and his election are sure. If he calls... You know, I very seldom, I, I, I don't know that I have actually met someone who's tr- truly heard the call of God that's ever rejected it. Now, I've heard people who turn off the phone. But when God tugs, God's pretty good at calling. I've seen people come to Christ that you're going like, no, there's no way he just got saved. Matter of fact, people probably said that about me. Because I had hair. And back then, you could not be saved and have hair as a man. I was one of those people. Why, Connie's dad called me hippie boy. It's my name. I know it's hard to imagine right now. But God called me when I still had hair. And you know the crazy thing is? The next step... God actually justified me. How in the world is he going to do that? He foreknew me. He predestined me. He got on the, he said, Jeff, you need to come to me. And then he actually made me right before him. He did that. Jeff Gill did not do that. Because in me dwells no good thing. All of my righteousness still to this day, are as filthy rags. You see, God justified me. God squared up the books of my life. When he called me to salvation, he instantaneously placed my name in the Lamb's book of life. He squared up my account and said, because you are my child, because not only did I foreknow, Not only did I predestine, not only did I call, but the moment you said yes to that call, you went in that list of people who are now completely just as if you've never sinned. And that's an oversimplification. But judicially, you have had your account completely squared up by God, even though you're still guilty. You went into court, judge says you're guilty, and Jesus stepped up and said, I will pay it all. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely owe. I will ever love and trust him. You you, you see, that's the work of salvation. And you can't have the foreordination and just the predestination or just the calling and not be justified. Now here's the good news as we wrap this up. To the person that has picked up the phone and has been called by God, because God's calling. You had the internal call, you had the external call, because you you see what happens is, how shall they hear? 
unless you preach. For faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so when someone is used of the Lord to give that external calling and then that internal calling and they collide, here's the external with the internal, guess what happens? You say yes to Jesus. And then God justifies, and here's the good news. You start that incredible process that ends with the very next thing, which is God's glorification. You see, because you've been made a saint instantaneously when you received the call, the word went out and you believed, and in your heart you were drawn to God. You said yes to Jesus Christ. The moment you believed, you were justified. And here's what's awesome. At that moment, you also became sanctified. And the process of your maturation is the totality of the sanctification happening over your lifetime, culminating one day with your glorification. Hallelujah. In other words, you start over there. You don't look so hot. I didn't look so hot when I first got saved. Matter of fact, I wasn't sure that I needed to give up much of anything. Other than the fact I knew I was a sinner, I needed a Savior. So I said yes to that part. Man, if I had only known what was following. (laughs) You want me to do that too? Uh Uh-huh. All right. I'll do it. But all along life's path, there's been this gradual climb. And one day, right into the presence of the Lord in glory. In the full likeness of him. And so as you look at this incredibly difficult passage, look at it the way God sees it. Of course he has foreknown. Of course he has predestined. Of course he is absolutely calling. Of course he is going to justify. And of course he's going to glorify. And he won't do step one without doing step five. He's not going to kind of halfway make you into a Christian. That's why it so infuriates me as a man who loves the grace of God to think of the concept uh, of purgatory. What in the world is that for? You mean the salvation that I said yes to isn't sufficient to get me to glorification? Read that passage. There's nothing in there that says Jeff needs to do anything. It says that God does every last bit of that. I have to say yes to the process. I've got to say yes to the call. I have to answer the gospel. When the gospel says Jesus saves, that he is the only way of salvation, there is no other name under heaven, and unless you believe on him, you cannot be saved. Once you say that, the rest of this stuff is all on God. That's why the he's are important. That's why the whom's are important. Because he does it, and to whom is you? It's me. It's to as many who have received him. To them, he gave the ability to become the sons, the daughters, the children, God's kids. He doesn't ever partially do that. If he does it at all, he does it all the way. That's why it says, to him he foreknew, to him he predestined. To him he predestined, to him he called. To him who's called, 
he is justified, or she. And to him who's justified, they will be glorified. You see, you can't get partway there. It's impossible. Because to get partway there is to not get there. Because it's all God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. We are saved by grace and through faith, and that even itself, the faith to believe isn't from you, it's from God. It's a gift. And so as I bring the worship team back out, and as we're going to close worshiping the Lord, this final promise of glory was not an uncertainty in the mind of Paul. It's not an uncertainty for you. It is an absolute certainty that he who began that good work in you is faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. As we'll see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, for it was this he called you to through the gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why you got called in the first place. The whole plan of salvation isn't to kind of sort of make you okay for a while so that you can kind of work it out your own self. For, in my case, I don't know how long I'd be in purgatory. Like seven and a half million years or something? I don't know. It'd be a long time if I was, I don't even know that that would do it. I'd probably figure out some way to really be messed up even in purgatory. I'd probably add years while I'm there. Praise God, it's not on me. Pray, think about it, family. Praise God, it's not on me. For him he foreknew. Amen? He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. And them he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also shall glorify. Amen? Be secure in your relationship with Christ. Would you stand and let's pray? And I want to give an opportunity tonight to... I'm going to have some of the pastors come forward. I just want to remind you, man, sometimes church, sometimes religion has made the glorious gospel, the good news, so complex. And it's not complex. Jesus Christ died for you. And he did so willingly. He didn't come begrudgingly to this earth and go, man, I can't believe I have to go there. He came with his face set on Jerusalem saying, this is what I've been called to do. And so if you're here tonight and you don't know the grace of God, Oh, in Jesus' name, he's calling you right now. He's calling you unto salvation. And if you've been walking away from him, you haven't been walking in the spirit, you've been wandering in the wilderness, he's calling you to holiness right now. He doesn't play games. He's all in, and he's asking us to be all in. We who name his name Notice it says, have been called to be conformed to his image. That means Christians, believers, my brothers and sisters, we've been called to represent the true and the living God.
Christ Jesus, our Savior, here on this earth so that people can see Jesus. We need to be like Jesus. We need to love like Jesus. We need to talk like Jesus. We need to be kind to people like Jesus. We need to meet people's needs like Jesus. But if you're here tonight and you don't know him, then I'm going to ask you, wherever you are tonight, these men would love to lead you in a simple prayer of faith in Christ Jesus. And you can begin that journey that I began in 1968 there at the altar of El Cajon First Baptist Church. When that call went out verbally to me, I'm offering you tonight faith in Christ by believing in the name of the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart. And if you're here, do not walk away from that call because you don't know if he's going to re-implement that call. He's calling you now. And today is the day of salvation. And he's asking you to believe on his name. And so come and be saved. Father, we thank you tonight that your arms are open wide. That none who come to you will you lose. And none will you cast out. And so, Father God, we pray if there's anyone here tonight, that they would leave their seats. They would come forward. And they would pray to receive you, Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. Maybe there's someone here tonight that has been not walking, and they know it. They've been sideways. They've been walking the back alleys of the Christian life for way too long, and they want to get that squared away. Would they come and allow you to be the Lord of their life, not just the Savior? And so, Father, we commit to you our lives afresh and new. Would you please use us for your glory in these last days? Would you strengthen us with great resolve to preach Christ and him crucified? We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.